This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Artica is a publisher, but it's actually much more. A place where books become art. A publisher that specialises in creating artisanal books together with the very best, most internationally renowned artists, managing to elevate different artistic disciplines to another level. If you'd like more information about Artica or its collection of artworks, go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the cultural figures and events that have shaped their lives and work. From early artistic influences to enduring references, to the writers and poets who inform their work and the music that's been the soundtrack to their career and the cultural epiphanies that have shifted their view of the world. And this episode is A Brush With, Tino Segal. Tino's an artist whose work transforms the space in which it's shown through the power of movement, speech and song. His work can disarm us and disrupt our experiences of museums and galleries or indeed wherever it takes place. Tino was born in London in 1976 to a father born in what's now Pakistan and a German mother. The family moved from London to Paris and Dusseldorf before settling in the Stuttgart suburb of Böblingen. Today he lives in Berlin. Early in his career, he moved to art from dance. He'd studied choreography alongside economics and worked with Xavier Leroy. Initially, he featured in his own work, but now he directs people, some regular collaborators, others from communities around the places where his work happens. So, for his latest show at Blenheim Palace, the vast 18th century English Baroque country house in Oxfordshire in the UK, built by John Vanbrugh with gardens by Capability Brown, Tino's work from the last two decades is enacted by some interpreters who've worked with him for years, but also 52 amateur participants from the local area who've been employed to take part in group actions, ranging from a 16-year-old to a 74-year-old. The works range from the intimate, like This You from 2003, where you encounter a lone person who, as you approach, sings a song that interprets your mood, to the epic, as in untitled scene for the Great Court, made specifically for Blenheim, where a large number of participants gather, stand in formation and sing samples from well-known tunes, before scrambling into a darting game of fast movement around the court. Then there's the work Kiss, again from 2003, where a couple perform a series of movements inspired by historic sculptures of kissing figures. Sometimes the participants can appear ignorant of the audience, immersed in their choreographies, while at others, like in the work These Associations from 2012 for instance, they directly engage you, coming up to you unexpectedly and telling you the intimate details of moments in their lives. Inevitably, the different modes within these works, Tino calls them constructed situations, prompt all manner of experiences and emotions, from bursts of joy to disorientation and discomfort. It's difficult to describe the profound effect of this variation, another work from 2012, where you enter a darkened room to be surrounded by Tino's participants' vigorous movements, chants and songs. His works have provided some of the most exhilarating moments I've ever experienced in museums and galleries. Partly, this is a direct result of that insistence on physical connection in an age when so much is done remotely or mediated through screens. Radically, Tino's art exists entirely in the moment it happens and then in memory, not as an object or even in reproduction, because he forbids the recording of his work. Even when it's acquired by museums and his work exists in many of the world's major museum collections from the Museum of Modern Art and Guggenheim in New York to the Stadelijk Museum in Amsterdam and the Tates in the UK, nothing is written down. The contracts are negotiated orally. In a world of excess and overproduction where climate catastrophe is palpably with us, Tino's art leaves no physical trace. 
Crucial to understanding Tino's work is that he doesn't see it in the tradition of performance art. While dance is undoubtedly fundamental to his art, and he regularly cites the great choreographer George Balanchine, for instance, Tino's work is made in relation to the history of painting and sculpture, and recent art, including minimalism and conceptualism. Talking about his affinity with minimal art, he said it sets up a space which positions the viewer. Minimal art's very situational. It's always there to put the viewer into relation with it. And it's this idea that I began our conversation with. What distinguishes his work from performance art and aligns it more with sculptural and installation traditions? It has more to do with the exhibition, you know, like the exhibition is a place which traditionally had like housed sculptures and installation. But I tried if you could do something else there. <laughs> so, because what I like about the exhibition is that it's a, it's a newer format, historically speaking. You know, it's, it's for like 200, 250, 300 years. And so it's the first kind of ritual format, one can say, which really addresses the individual, which means that like you come at your will during the opening hours and you choose how long to stay, you choose what to look at. So it's a very kind of, choice-oriented, flexible, liberal format. That was also helpful because, you know, like it allowed for interaction in a way like, like for example, the stage doesn't allow, you know, you, you can pull up somebody on stage, but it's not really a comfortable situation of somebody who doesn't really want to be in standing in front of like a few hundred people suddenly standing in front of people are supposed to react. Like it's much more interesting to be like one-on-one -on, -one on a Tuesday morning in a gallery, you know, and over time, there are more people that go into a gallery. If you look at a week, you know, like a stage will be open. So it's not that the gallery has less people, just as a kind of side note. And I mean, the other thing was also that my question, that's probably the bigger reason is like, what can we do in life, you know, in society instead of producing things? And the museum was the right place to kind of make an experiment around that question. I wanted to explore that a bit because there's a perception that you're artistic model if you like is is a kind of ecological model and I wanted to know how much of it is seen in that context of climate change of sustainability and to what extent that governs that thinking or, or to what extent it's just a part of it no I think that's the starting point you know I grew up in a in a place which was like where high industrial production was not an abstraction you know like when I looked from my teenage room like I could see Hewlett Packard Mercedes-Benz um, you know, like huge production facilities, which were bigger than the rest of the city. My my school bus was also the shift bus for Mercedes-Benz, you know. So for me, it was not an abstraction, you know. And people either in our town there, like close to Stuttgart, they were either working at the conveyor belt or they were managing, you know, in some ways in these companies. And so life revolved around this really kind of straightforward industrial production. And so for me, it was clear, like, that's what we do in our society and um, it's not sustainable, it's not that interesting. And I thought, what else could one do? And so really the work stems from this point, but for me, it really stems from that political concern. But for me, it was also an interesting experiment to say, can I produce something interesting which is sustainable without, let's say, claiming that it's interesting because it's sustainable? And that fact itself is actually more sustainable because things that are interesting just for themselves will have a bigger impact I think than things that are like well it's good you know 
And so, so that was my starting point. And the art world really didn't catch up onto this thing at all. And that was fine for me because for me, it was more trying to show like you can do interesting things without transforming material and generating carbon dioxide. And I also had a lot of respect for the art game. So I wanted to do, you know, in my ethical parameters, I wanted to, to, to do something in, in the art game and, and, and art game, you know, exhibitions developed during the industrial revolution. It's not a coincidence that we're a society which produces lots of things. And then we have invented a ritual, which is just basically focused on things, you know? So, so I was like, well, if I can do it in our ritual format, you know, which mirrors our society, it also shows that there are other things in society, which we can busy ourselves with, which most traditional societies or other societies than modern industrial societies anyway always did you know so it was also in a way a reminder and it was important to put that reminder in this let's say temple of objects talking about temples of objects you, you've got this current exhibition at blenheim you've shown in other spaces which contain those objects and i wonder do you have a preference of making work for spaces which contain historic or contemporary physical objects or do you prefer an empty space as a, as a site for your work and do you present different works in those different spaces or can you present exactly the same work and it still have resonance in both kinds of space if you like no i think that like my preference is a decorated space nowadays you know but it doesn't necessarily have to be a space with other works for most of the time like i've tried to evade that as much as possible because it's also like in the valences that still exist less but still exists it can still be like oh these people are doing something for this painting and also there's like a competition especially with painting because people look at the painting they're putting the back to my people so it's it's not a good combination most of the time i did one work was like in fondation Bayerle in i think 2017 where there was a painting by Francis Bacon on one wall and then there on the opposite wall there was my first work instead of allowing something to rise up to your face dancing Bruce and Dan and other things long title sorry about that <laughs> uh, but but point being that like you couldn't see both at the same time but the kind of formal similarities were kind of clear but you literally you had to turn around to see both of them they were kind of separated by by a good like say eight meters or something so I've done it on occasion but in general for most of the time that I've you know done shows I've worked in white cubes and I was happy to do so now I'm a little bit tired of that but you know like an empty white cube was like my go-to and then there of course you know there's better rooms and, and less good rooms I wanted to ask about you talked about that the idea of you know the choice of the audience for a museum the idea that it is left up to you to visit when you want to visit and for how long you visit and everything else and how much you employ that as an element in your work when you make work for museums in the sense that there is an agency in the museum audience that say a theatre or concert hall audience doesn't have and how much you want to instrumentalize that or at least use that as a sort of powerful element within the work. I mean, it's similar, like with the sustainability question, it just produces like a, a let's say, an ethical framework for the work to exist in. You know, like, like I think in our society we are individuals. We we are powerful through voting, through our decisions as consumers. You know, we're powerful through market research because basically people are scanning like what our preferences are. So it's more a framework which corresponds to the way I perceive life to be in current societies is that like you are powerful. So, and whereas let's say in Greek antiquity or in a medieval church, I mean, 
you know, not everybody could vote if they could vote at all, you know, like their consumer choices weren't, you know, like as impactful because basically there was less than everybody needed. So like what your choice was, was kind of irrelevant, you know, so in that sense, you know, we also had societies were smaller. So we had formats where, yeah, which mirrored a little bit this fact, like you're as an individual, you're more part of an element of a collective body. And that's how these formats like the church or, or like the theater placed people, no? Like it's also not a coincidence, let's say that in the Greek theater of antiquity, you also had a, a you know, what they call the choir, you know, which is not necessarily singing choir, but like this group of people, because that was like the, the relevant formation. Today, I would say the relevant entity is the individual but that's you know lots of sociologists have filled many books about that like that that's a process which just starts with modernity the idea of that that we are individuals which is difficult for us to understand because we are individuals but so it's not that I want to use it it's just for me a given like that's how I see life and society to be so yeah obviously if we make like a kind of artistic ritual experience Experience, you know, whatever you want to call it, people don't necessarily like the word ritual in a secular society. But at the end of the day, that's what these formats and places are in some very secular and way, then they should somehow correspond to the way life is, you know, otherwise, they seem to me a little bit like out of step. One of the things I'm really conscious of when I'm experiencing your work is that there are rules and the more I see of your work, I find myself engaging with those rules and disengaging with those rules through the piece. So why do they form in formation at this point? What are their instructions that they act on? To what extent do you want the, those rules to be open to question or to be considered by the audience? So I'll, I'll give you an example. At Blenheim, uh, one of the interpreters came up to me and told me about this experience where she's not a grandmother, but she's married to somebody who has grandchildren, and they adopted her as a grandparent. She became called a grandparent, and this was a this was a landmark moment for her. And I was charmed by this story, and then I began to think about what the instruction was that she had in terms of how she engaged with me. I suppose that it's it's about that interaction being a, actually quite an emotional and personal connection, but at the same time, she is adhering to certain instructions so i guess that's what i'm talking about yeah i mean you're obviously free to think and feel whatever you want to feel i mean like it's a little bit like i think it applies to any situation you know like i can i can react to what somebody's saying in a situation and i can think about why are they saying that you know like i mean judith butler kind of i think made that clear in the 80s already and maybe derrida too you know, there is no communication without conventions, without what you call rules, you know. So you can always ask yourself, by which rules are we now communicating? You know, like there's certain words you and me are not using, like I'm not picking my nose, you're not picking your nose. Like, although, you know, we keep the video on, you know, like there's lots of rules we're following now. They're just less obvious because they're so ingrained and embodied let's say the rules of polite conversation the rules of an interview the rules of like two people that know of each other don't really know each other and you know like like there's a lot of rules which we're following now but we've been trained let's say for a good 18 years by our parents by school to follow these rules and then we were let in the world and then we're, we're practicing them for another few decades you know and so I think you can always ask that question it's true that like my work because it's close to everyday life, but you realize it's not everyday life, you, you kind of 
it maybe springs up, but it's obviously experience that I don't have because I invented the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the one experience I don't have. I, I mean, I probably if I, if I would be in your position, maybe I'd also ask myself that, you know, but I think also, I mean, you can watch a movie like that. Like if you're more, let's say jaded movie viewer, like I don't watch a lot of movies, you know? So, so I remember like sometimes with my, with my friend and mentor Xavier Leroy, we would go and see like blockbuster films and, and I would be very much, because I don't, I would see them like once or twice a year. I'd be very much like taken by them, you know, and, and like taken by the story. Then I started to watch a little bit more movies or over the years because for, for, I think a long time I didn't watch any. Then, of course, you understand the structure and like, okay, well, so what is the cliffhanger now? What is going to happen? And yeah, how do they do this? And how is the camera here? You know, like, so I think this applies to everything. If you watch sports, you can be like, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? Or you can be like, what's the tactic here? You know, what rules are they following? You know, it applies to any situation. And I think that her story is good. And like, and the, the question she's answering to is, when did you have a moment of arrival? I mean, I'm quite sure that's that one. Because they get questions and they can always answer to them again and again. Like, I have never heard this story, so you know more than me in a way. Right. What, what I know is the questions which are out there. Yes, and she had the other rules, like whatever rule, like it's like she doesn't really say hello to you. She just tells you this story and then she leaves also at some point, you know. I wanted to ask you that in a previous interview, we, we talked about something, and I, th I think it's very instructive when you're at Blenheim because of the setting. Mm -hmm. you, t you talked to me about the fact that you were particularly struck by the fact that Louis XIV organised dance as a form of control. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in that idea and how much that is sort of in the back of your mind when you're working very directly in a, in a space which has a very, you know, the formal gardens, which were the kind of legacy of Louis XIV in a sense. I mean, Capability Brown would be unhappy about what you said right now because he invented the English Garden and he did a good job in Blenheim. But, um, but yeah, like uh, that's that's funny. When did we do this interview? It was it was two thousand twelve. Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking about that at all. But you reminded me now, and it has more to do with what we talked about at the beginning. Is like. Isn't about really dance as a form of control. I mean, like to be a bit more precise, it's the setting, right? Because what is the Louis XIV move of, let's say, I dance instead of you dance, you know? That's the decisive thing. Because there was dancing in both cases. Once there was, like, let's say, a social dance, you know, people, I guess today, a court dance, you know, some kind of line dance. And so people were engaging with each other, which is, which is a generous thing. And now he was like, I don't want you to engage with each other. I want you to focus on me so you don't engage with each other. And for that, I also have to do some extra good stuff. And it was also maybe he preferred to dance and to speak. You know, some people are speakers and he found a way. But to me, let's say if you ask me today, it's more about the format shift because dancing exists in both cases. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. So the first question is, who was the first artist whose work you loved? I never loved his work, but let's say the first work that I kind of engaged with, that I knew of, like, was definitely Beuys, you know, because he was like a kind of public figure in Germany at that time. I also partially grew up in Düsseldorf as a kid, so it was kind of a name I knew, and then kind of the idea that you could do art with actions, you know, that was obviously something that I was interested in and also this kind of 
detournement, which, which we have a lot in this kind of art, not necessarily so much in boys, but like I was, you know, as a, as a teenager, I was like a kind of avid skateboarder and, you know, like a street skater. So I, I knew like this kind of detournement, like you use a handrail for something else than it's supposed to use for. So like there were relations there and, um, but I wouldn't go so far that I loved the work. I think the first work that like my first like art book I had because I came from a very kind of suburban, uncultural background was that I somehow found this Taschen book of Yves Klein. And so I think that was the first artist that I was like really kind of, I had this book and I would like flip through the pages and I would read it again and again. And then I think the second one was I'm probably Duchamp already. I'm interested, Boyce, one talks to artists who studied in Germany and and quite often they put him in oppositional terms that he was either a great liberating figure or he was an oppressive figure you studied economics and dance right so it's slightly different if you're not in the art school system but did you perceive of Boyce having a particular kind of presence if you like you called him a public figure but did he have a, a negative or positive effect as it were I think what I took from Boyce is that like that there's a certain kind of openness, like that everything is possible. Today, I think he took things a little bit too open. I would claim that like some of his works were interesting. Let's say, for example, documenta contributions like this Office for Direct Democracy. They were interesting, let's say, cultural events in that moment. But I'm not sure they they qualify as a work of art in the sense that it's not something which is repeatable. It's not something which can be really shown again in a museum beyond this person also nothing which was intended to be shown again and so I'm not sure it really qualifies 100% you know to being an artwork you know and also I'm not sure you know how formed that was for example if you take these things but like I think there's there's great works like the 7,000 oak trees or something which is interesting you know if you see it nowadays like it's, it's simple also but yeah I wasn't so passionate about it maybe also wasn't so passionate because it was very maybe already present or something I don't know Yves Klein was something that I then discovered more and the sensibility I think I related more to the sensibility of it when you say the sensibility what do you mean the colors the monochromes like jumping into the voids and if you look at my work I think it's closer to I, I would say it's closer to Yves Klein who I also don't think about too much you know <laughs> like it's a long time we're talking about stuff which is really a long time ago but like I think also Yves Klein with his judo you know the, the idea of having a skill like a, a bodily skill you know like how I employ dance unless I, you know I had to properly train and transform in, in a way like who I was you know how my body works you know like and so I think whereas Boyce was more of a I mean he was trained in visual art I guess <laughs> that's probably the difference I'm intrigued by the sort of repeatability element that you talked about in connection mm. with Boyce because of course one of the key things about your work is that it is repeatable you know in the sense that it's passed on through this oral process and museums buy it and then re-perform it can you say something about you know, to what extent are you still involved? Say the Tate was to do This Is Propaganda in the museum next month. To what extent would you be involved in the recreation of that piece then? Not necessarily me personally. I mean, I think they showed it once more and I didn't see it. But of course, it's somebody from my team, like somebody who's authorized to kind of set up that work. And uh, so in a sense, it would pass through, you know, somehow through the computer that we're... Uh, talking through now, probably, you know, like a curator at the Tate would then write 
to me also, you know, I think that's also normal practice with living artists. So in other words, there is still a connection to you for the moment, but because of the oral process, it could still be performed 100 years from now. And of course, that wouldn't involve a particular personal connection to you. I don't think it has to do with the oral process it has much to do with the repeatability, you know, like the fact that it's repeatable means that like, and it doesn't rely on somebody specific like me or something like that. It means that it can be shown again, like the Balanchine works are being shown and like in, in Balanchine's case, like the ballets that he did are now being set up by, by people who never knew Mr. Balanchine. And now how you organize that process, you know, like obviously these people have to be trained properly. Who do they get trained by? They can look at a video in Balanchine's case. In my case, not. But I think those are footnotes, you know. The, the core thing is that it is repeatable, you know. And the difficulty, as I've often said, with repeatability is that the passing on of the knowledge, this chain cannot be interrupted, you know. Whereas, let's say, if you have a Picabia painting and, you know, for 50 years everybody thinks that Picabia was just, like, you know, not a relevant artist, and then 50 years later people start looking into the depots of museums and they're they still there, and then they say, like, actually, this was the greatest artist, then there's no problem. Whereas, let's say, in Balanchine's case or my case, if people say for a few decades, you know, like, oh, this is kind of not really interesting to us, you know, then the knowledge gets lost, which we had a little bit with Nijinsky's Sacre du Printemps, you know, like where they had to then reconstruct it. And obviously nobody knows if this reconstruction is actually. Um, so that's the risk that this, this chain of knowledge, of passing on of knowledge gets interrupted. There has to be like a continuous passing on. Whereas let's say with a Picabia painting, let's say if the, whatever the storage where it is, burns down that's the end of the Picabia painting no matter how much people think it's relevant so there's a risk there too it's just different kinds of risk but there's no categorical difference in my opinion which historical artist do you turn to the most today I mean obviously there's many artists that I've been interested in but let's say if you would ask a professional athlete like which historical athlete do you turn to I don't know like do you think that Roger Ferrer is, is checking out on Rod Laver? No, like they're doing their own thing. You know? like, <laughs> I mean. Well, I suppose, look, but here, I'm going to suggest a name to you. And I know this is an artist that you've referred to because you mentioned it to me when we spoke last. I was, I'm going to say Watto because, you know, again, the most recent time I saw your work was, was at Blenheim and inevitably it conjured Watto to me. And I know that you, you have looked at Watto. So, and I wondered how present, for instance, he was in your mind when you did the Blenheim work. I mean, not present, but like I, you go through phases and it's a way it's like like relationships you know like the relationships don't end but they also are different like I definitely had a phase where I somehow discovered these kind of conversation paintings you know and and Bateau is also a fun choice you know like it's also it was a way also let's say of displacing like in a conversation like with somebody like you saying like oh yeah, like, oh, it's live, oh, oh, it's so different. You know, like, no, like, here, look look at these paintings, kind of similar. And yeah, it did cross my mind. I didn't think of Vatou specifically, but like, I think they even called like that the pleasure gardens. You know, like they were gardens where people hung out, you know, like it was, they weren't gardens only to look at, you know, like, I mean, yes, like Capability Brown kind of undid the whole French model, but it's still very visual, also garden architecture, a park landscaping but nonetheless it was places for people to like be social now they're mostly places for people to to look right like with the tourists look 
but like with my work it becomes a, a little bit more social again like there's actually interactions in these gardens which are let's say yeah like you say a little bit more formalized i mean there are social interactions where people picnic and stuff like that it does happen you know people play cricket people picnic and stuff like that on the on the south lawn at blenheim but but in general let's say the majority is kind of looking you know like in a, in a sightseeing way but in some cases for instance you employ the language of historical works in your work so kiss for instance it's been performed across the world it's the first thing you see the minute you walk into blenheim palace and that very directly refers to historic works to what extent are they also so, sort of subversions of those sculptures that in a sense they they evoke them but also obviously through the process of movement they disentangle them or whatever no i wouldn't say i would want to subvert something art history it's it's like a a chain of beads you know like it's very much like builds upon each other like a simple thought experiment is like you know if, if you have you know a young person teenager who paints like picasso as well as picasso in the art history game let's say that's not really worth anything <laughs> which is astonishing you know like if you think about it you know it needs to be a new bead in the chain so in that sense you know like that's the logic you know when i when i did kiss you know like it's like okay we have a certain trope in art or how do you say like topic which is the kiss like different artists have worked on that like Bancusi or Rodin, Klimt you know let me do my version of that you know and I think art often functions like that and in a way what I did is like because I have this let's say more versatile medium I can also kind of literally pass through them and that's also a way of showing respect but also in a way of, of making a comparison. Now, what is the difference between my kiss, which is live, and Rodin's kiss? You know, it's, it's opening up that question. I wanted to ask about the fact that when I was looking at that work, I noticed that it seemed to me that it was being performed by a man and a woman. But in, in one instance, it seemed to me that the woman was occupying the place of the man in Rodin's kiss. And I wonder how, as it's performed, that, that choreography deliberately plays with the sort of gender balance, if you like, in, in the original works. And that's well observed. Yeah, like they do one round where, let's say, the male dancer takes up the, the feminine role let's say you know which you can find from the positions in the sculptures and and then it switches back around so it always goes one direction and and then back and yeah also yeah the whole gender thing is definitely important there and it's also interesting to play with like who's doing what and what are their kind of what is their positionings you know so yeah and i wanted to talk a bit about contemporary artists so i particularly wanted to ask you about this famous thing about you which is that there is something called a coons test it relates to jeff coons and tell me about the coons test i mean this is something i did like this a very long time ago but it was like maybe 15 years ago 16 years ago when i was a more of a of an emerging artist and then you know i had the privilege to meet many curators and it's it was just a simple way of finding out where somebody stands <laughs> like because how can i say this Jeff is an artist that people really react to strongly. And when it comes to economics, something that I studied or political economy, like there's a lot of confusion, which also came from the 60s, 70s generation, which had a, a quite superficial reading of Marx, you know, or like a vulgarized reading of Marx, which was then translated to art, which produced all sorts of kind of confusions. And they've only slowly, I think, like with the current younger generations, you know, like I feel they've really done away with that, you know, and, and they're not in this confusion in the same way anymore. But like it was a shorthand way to find out where somebody politically 
stands without going through a lot of topics, which could be endless. <laughs> Would it simply consist of you asking the curator that you were going to work with, what do you make of Jeff Koons? I wouldn't do it in a methodological way, but like in the conversation, sometimes there's an opportunity to, to bring that up or something. But but I literally, I haven't done it for like more than like, like, I think probably the last time I did it was like 13, 14 years ago. So I honestly can't even remember, you know. You mentioned instead of allowing something to rise up to your face, dancing Bruce and Dan and other things from 2000, sort of one of your first works. And that was a work in which you quoted in a sense you, it was a sort of movement collage from Dan Graham and Bruce Nauman did you see that as, as, as a critique or something much more um, subtle than that no both I mean it's again like exactly it's the same principle as in Kiss it's a respect show of respect it's also kind of in a way situing myself which was a necessity at the time in this kind of chain of beads, if that's something you can say in English, and saying like, yeah, well, dance has existed in, in visual art, you know, like Bruce Nauman had a strong reception of Cunningham. It's not somebody like I returned to, let's put it like that, but of that scene, let's say, also the Judson Church scene, and he put it into video. And then Dan Graham kind of showed respect to Bruce Nauman, thought these works were great, but also, also had a critique. It's like, what about the camera in these videos? You know, why does the camera always stay outside of the whole setup? You know, so Dan Graham incorporated the, the camera. And I was like, yeah, but, but what about the, the specificity of dance, which was relevant to me, which is that something that kind of produces without producing, you know, to say it like quickly. That specificity of dance was lost, in my opinion, when you put it into video. It was just a way for me to make my point, you know. Like then also instead of allowing, I think, which is a short way of saying this long title, what's interesting about it to me nowadays is that it kind of feels and looks like an object without being one and without being still. I wondered about your studio setup because I normally ask people at this point what they have pinned to their studio wall. And I don't even know if you have a studio. Do you have what could be regarded as a conventional studio setup? No, I never really had a studio. Like in, in the house I lived in, we had like a shared rehearsal space. And so sometimes I would use that. But basically a lot of my work is like I work on it like, like in my head. Like it can be for years or it can be really like a matter of a few seconds. But questions, ideas, concerns that I have. And then I try to you know, bring them into a form. And that happens mostly in my head, actually. I mean, sometimes when I have to choreograph, but that, that I've done like four or five times in my life, you know, like where really then like I have an idea, then I want to choreograph something in a certain direction. Then I have like a more, let's say, less conceptual process where, where I'm there trying things out, like choreographing to the music and stuff like that does happen. But then I just do it in like literally in the living room or, or in a rehearsal space. One thing that you once said, i sorry to keep quoting you back at yourself, but, but I was intrigued by this, was, was that you felt that often if you write down an idea, if you need to write down an idea, maybe that idea isn't, isn't so strong. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? I mean, an idea which governs an artwork should be a powerful thing because in, in, the, in the end, you know, like people are going to walk through an exhibition, travel to an exhibition, pay for an exhibition to see it, you know, which is something you can remember for more than a few minutes, you know. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs> 
This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica, a publisher that creates art with each of its publications. Artica specialises in developing unique artist books that propose new readings of the bodies of work of major artists across history. They create books that seem to be chiselled into sculptures, written on canvases or etched with the artist's intimate thoughts. Books that are works of art in themselves, thanks to the meticulous artisanal production process with which they've been created and the innovative concept behind each one. From Vincent van Gogh to Pablo Picasso to Jaume Plenza, Salvador Dali, Anthony Gaudí, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec and most recently Frida Kahlo. With this latest release containing Kahlo's most intimate and personal drawings, Artica offers a never-before-seen glimpse into the private world of the iconic Mexican painter. Check out this and other limited edition works by Artica at articabooks.com and discover books transformed into art. Let's let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, where I spent a lot of time and where I really love the architecture is probably the, the Martin Gropius Bob. I also curated there like now twice and, and I had a solo show there. And that's, I would say, maybe the, the place that I'm most familiar with it, you know, with, you know like I, I know everybody that works there, all the guards, you know, like, so I can just walk in there, which I'm not sure that's true in any other place. <laughs> But but your gravitation towards that isn't just an accident of place. It's a place that you wanted to work and wanted to engage with the architecture and, and the, the atmosphere of that space. No, it was a bit of a coincidence. Like the former director, um, Geron Sievernich, like he asked me and it was a little bit out of the blue. I mean, I lived in Berlin at that time for like 20 years and I'd rarely been to Gropiusbau. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really something which was on the map. Now it's changed in the last six, seven years, you know. But at the beginning, I remember receiving the letter I was like, okay, this is coming from a kind of a different scene a little bit. But I really enjoyed the atrium and how that like, because in a way it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Theater stage is more collective format. Museums galleries more individualized formats. But I think today in terms of, you know, the process of individualization, which was a process of emancipation, of gaining freedom, you know, like it was always about undoing ties, you know, like the tie that I have to my religion, to my nation, to my family, you know, like I can undo that. I can, like this rigidity can be replaced by choice. That was always a struggle and that was a struggle for freedom. And now we've, we've achieved, you know, that to the, a very high degree. And now freedom is something very flexible, very movable, whereas like a grounding, a belonging is more rooted, no? Like it's less flexible, like. You can't have 12 homes, you know, like you have, you know, like, I mean, maybe you can have 12, but maybe not like <laughs> 35 or something. At some point, you don't feel at home with them anymore, you know. So there is a certain, let's say, reduction, rigidity, not movability, you know, in all directions there. So I think like something like the atrium of Gopresbau, like, which is, you know, like relatively big atrium, but it's surrounded by gallery spaces. So that's unusual about it. So it allowed me also my solo show in 2015, like I could show like individual works in, in the galleries around, but then sometimes it would literally leave doing that work and gather together in the atrium and have like this collective moment of singing all together. And then they would go back to there and people could walk around. So it would also be where we would unite all the visitors, like all the people doing my work, all the visitors would be together in this big atrium. So there would be a collective moment, but it would go back also to this more individualized thing where you walk around from work to work. And so I think that was something which I enjoyed a lot 
in that architecture, you know, and, and then, yeah, I curated two shows there together with Thomas Oberender, the, he's called the Intendant, so he's like the, the director of Berliner Festspiele, which is the organization which Gropiusbau is like part of. And so, yeah, I enjoyed being able to, to play with how to use that building. Each time we used it quite differently. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think Xavier Leroy's product of circumstances was definitely, even just reading about Xavier's work, like in the early mid-90s, where it's like a doctor of molecular biology is dancing with his body parts fragmented to Fugazi music. I was like, okay, here is something which is really encompassing, you know, like you have science, you have embodiment, you have art, because he wasn't doing dance as entertainment, and you have also in a way, you know, a reception of pop culture with the Fugazi. So that was like his first work. But the product of circumstances where he gives this lecture and dances at the same time, that was also for me something formative. I actually helped him a little bit on that, on the English. You know, I was exposed to that. How old was I then? I was like maybe... 22 or something. So that that was formative. And I think also Christoph Stingsief did this thing in the early 90s in Volksbühne in Berlin. And that was definitely a kind of epiphany. It was very situational. And I definitely had this epiphany moment. It was called like Raumschiff Europa or something like that. And you had this cast of like differently abled people and then the regular Volksbühne actors and he'd taken out the seats and he was on stage or like in the room basically and it was like every time different he was like live directing it with like a megaphone and like obviously they had like a kind of toolkit of what they could do but he was like live DJing it and also reacting to the session live and I remember like I thought that was like probably some of the best work I ever saw but unfortunately Christoph had my opinion, I now I can say that now that unfortunately he's not alive, like I don't think he had a good context in terms of like who was influencing, you know, like the discourse that he was perceiving. Like and he had this idea which he was a hugely talented director and creative person. But in my opinion, like that was the pinnacle. Like there was another piece like that. And then he had the idea, I'm gonna do a traditional theater piece now. Ha 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 ha. To me, that didn't make sense, you know, like like he had a real situational talent with people also and with his live directing. But that was definitely a moment of epiphany. And then there was also another moment which didn't feel like an epiphany, but I think it really influenced me, which is a choreographer who did in the early 90s. He's called Felix Ruckert, not known anymore. But he did this project here like in this kind of dance studios, which were newly established then, like all rusty and like in the 90s aesthetic of the time, but it was called Haut now, like so skin close or something. And then you would be led somewhere and one dancer would dance for you. And I don't think it made like a huge impression on me at the time. I definitely didn't have this like sense like with Christos piece, like of an epiphany or something. But I do think it, it subconsciously must have influenced me. You know, somehow that it was possible, that it somehow made sense that one person would be doing something for somebody else, you know. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? I love reading sociology. I love a good sociologist. I'm less interested in philosophy nowadays. I'm less interested also in fiction. I mean, definitely had phases in my life where I would read, but if I returned to something, I would re-watch In the Middle Somewhat Elevated by Bill Forsyth, you know. 
and you know just on video like that that happens let's say once a year or something uh, that I'm in the mood of looking at and listening to this like iconic soundtrack of Tom Willems like that was something that I return to or if I get a chance to see a Balanchine ballet I probably make an effort to go but to books it would be more like I return to let's say this this text by Keynes economic prospects for our grandchildren or this text by Margaret Mead art and reality or this book by John Kenneth Galbraith the affluent society that's more what let's say gets me going than like I mean I, d I didn't really grow up with poetry and I don't really have a strong relation to it I listen to a lot of music We'll come on to music in a second. I wanted to ask you first, though, about in these association, there are very direct quotes, although they're sort of fragmented from, for instance, Hannah Arendt and Heidegger. And I wondered about why you chose those texts to form part of the work. Did they define the subject matter? Did they skew the subject matter to a certain degree? No, I think, you know, it's like, I mean, I made these associations for the turbine hall. So like the turbine hall is obviously a site of industrial production. So we're very close to my concerns that we talked about at the beginning, you know. And I think that both Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger, they were like among the first to understand that like something categorical was shifting, you know, like, I mean, the Hannah Arendt quote is like, um, today we have begun to create natural processes of our own. And instead of surrounding ourselves with defenses against nature's elementary forces, we channel them into the world itself, you know? So it's the description of something categorical, like a categorical shift, which this was my thinking from, from late teenage times on, that something categorical had shifted in the, let's say, civilizational process, which was somehow we were producing more than we needed, whereas like humankind's, let's say, state tended to be more like, we have less, we are able to produce less than we need, you know? And, and the same thing with our relation to the planet, you know, like that somehow we were fearful of the dangers of nature and how we had managed to wield these powers to a degree where was it again endangering, not really the planet, because the planet is going to continue and it's always, you know, no matter what, and it's going to change, but it's going to endanger the situation that we're going to, we have such an impact on the planet that it can endanger the, the disposition of the planet, which is, which is, you know, the one we're used to, which is beneficial to life or to human life, you know, and, and that seems to become all the more palpable. Now in West Germany, we just had these huge floods, you know, like in, I think in Belgium too. Let's talk about music then. The question I normally ask at this point, and it becomes interesting in your case, because the question I normally ask is what music or other audio do you listen to while working? Mm. And often that's because the artist has a studio. I suppose a variation of that question is, do you have different music that you listen to as you're thinking your pieces through in the way that you described to the kind of music you might listen to on, at other times? Mm, not out of principle, no. Like Because like the, let's say the way I work is like an ongoing process. It like literally doesn't stop. It could be like while making food or like while standing in a line or like, you know, under the shower, in the train. Like it's just like there, like say in my mind. I guess I'm very much an artist. Like I don't have to like sit down and like think now nine to five artist time, you know, like it's something I can't really run away from. But it's also, I'm not obsessed with it. Like, I'm not worried at, like, at this point in my life if I'm not thinking about work or something. And, and I'm not really 
super focused on one because I know it's like it's more like a plant it's like growing because it's part of my life experience and me changing and at this point in my life I have the confidence that like when you evolve as a human being different utterances will emerge you know so in a way it's important as an artist in my opinion to to live your life <laughs> consciously and also with an aim at developing you know if you just stay the same and you know then that's and that's obviously you're going to kind of put out the same thing or say the same thing. But we were talking about music, you know. So, like, for example, with this variation, I think I was inspired, not directly, it was like years before by this remix album, which was like really big at the time by too many DJs. Yeah. And I, was, I listened to that a lot. And it was just so eclectic and at the same time so organic. You know, one thing, I think that's really their strength and why this why this kind of remix album was maybe so successful at the time. No, like it wasn't really a remix. I mean, it was like a kind of collage, in a way, musical collage, which was very much one thing at the same time. You know, it had such a groove. And I always had the idea, like, I'd like to organize like a party to that album, you know, and like have people also dance to it in a more structured way. So like that would be like a desire I had, but that didn't really work in the parameters of my work, you know, like I'm not going to play a CD or something. <laughs> and so I think that that desire, let's say, which wasn't necessarily artistic desire, I just enjoyed that album, which is one when from the mid 2000s, no, or even early 2000s. And so that, that desire waned, but somehow I think then years later, it, it popped up in this variation where this variation is like a kind of dance party in a dark room, but the music is produced by the people dancing and stuff like that. So some elements of this, let's say, initial desire from then whatever, like six, seven years earlier from listening to that music. Let's talk about some other musical pieces. There was, there was a piece called This Joy, which I witnessed at Blenheim. And it, it, I'm standing there and three uh, interpreters are performing Beethoven's Fifth effectively through movement and singing. Tell me about that, because obviously it's a feat of memory apart from anything else. Um, but but it's it's enormously complex in in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, we showed a little bit of excerpts. It's a, it's a work which was which was the first commission I really did. It was a commission by the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna for like the 250th birthday of Beethoven. And also a little bit works in this chain idea, you know, like there's the, there's the idea of joy in Schiller and a lot of in, in the culture of that time. And then also Beethoven in a way like it, the Schiller poem you know of ode to joy was already like i don't know like a hit you can't hear anymore it was like a thing that people would sing in the in the bar and 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 beethoven was like no i'm gonna you know now we don't know that anymore and we don't know all the other compositions which were around that but he said no no i i think that's great and i'm gonna pay my respect to it and do my version of it you know and i think that it's interesting with Beethoven. It's not somebody that I followed hugely or listened to a lot, but obviously it's Beethoven managed to come up with a few tunes, which are the most known melodies ever, you know, on the planet probably. And I had a huge respect for that. Like, and I was like, curious, you know, like, what are these melodies? Why do they transcend somehow like so many generations, which is rare, you know? And so it was also an opportunity to study that a little bit. And then, yeah, the way the piece works is that, like, they sing a movement of a Beethoven symphony. So, for example, the fifth that you mentioned, that's a choreography for the fingers and the arm while they're singing. And then seventh is a choreography for the torso. So it's also like a game. So, like, the dancers have to sing and they have to move the, the torso in that sense. But the rest of their body, like their head and their arms and their legs are free to do what they want, you know, 
and uh, if they can then still do something while they're doing this choreography is another question it takes takes a month and we haven't showed the work a lot because it was then first shown in 2020 so it was like corona restrictions and the museum was it was open for a few weeks and then closed again so it's still a kind of in a weird way at the beginning of the process but yeah that's that's the way it works yeah and then, of course, there are musical references which sort of run across your work. There's a work, for instance, that I heard very clearly a, a, a fragment of um, The Robots by Kraftwerk. Yeah. And that was, apart from anything else, it made me think of a, a crucial thing, which is about recognition in terms of music. And obviously, I recognise that, but there was another piece of music which was wah, 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 and I don't know what that is. That's the beginning of Socket to Me by Missy Elliott. Oh, is it? Okay, there you go. But that, but that's, a, that's a sample also. I mean, she made like, or Timberland made that into like the defining loop of that Socket to Me song. But it comes from an earlier song, I think from the 70s, where it just shows up once, where I forget the name right now. Right, okay. But I'm really interested in terms of your use of those um, pieces of music. They are pieces that you are interested in, that you love. What brings them into your work? I think, you know, that I made this composition was, I did it for this Corpus Bau show, which I, which I told you where, like, that's what they would sing when they all came together in the, in the atrium, you know. And uh, I think there's a kind of too stark division in our society. You know, we had... In my opinion, we had like, let's say medieval times, we had, you know, like societies which were largely ruled by, let's say, a transcendental sphere, like supposedly by a so-called religion. But really what was ruling was like just human beings who were speaking in the name of spirituality, but, you know, they had very worldly motives, I think, for a good part, let's say. I mean, I wasn't there, so difficult to judge, but that's how it seems to me. And from that, we broke off with Enlightenment and we said, you know, like, not that somebody said this consciously, but this seems to be like the cultural movement of Enlightenment. Like, like there's so much abuse of power which is happening through religion. Like, one way to stop this is to just claim there is no transcendental sphere, you know? The only thing that exists is what can be seen, sensed, proven repeatedly in an experiment. Everything else doesn't exist. And that also kind of, like, if we create a society of those foundations, then nobody can claim something in the name of God, you know, and, and, and put this divine cloak around their worldly motives, you know. So it was like, you know, in, in my little thought experiment, because I don't think that somebody had consciously this idea, you know, it was a very effective strategy, you know, like to undo a certain societal formation. But I think that it's a little bit too stark and reductive. Like now we live in a highly secular society and we're a little bit deprived of our connections and our efforts to connect with or reconnect with like other dimensions, you know, whatever that may be. So sometimes I like to take something. So this particular, let's say, composition for, for a choir, which you saw at the Great Court of Blenheim is, yeah, it, it's taking these like pop music samples Kind of coming from a more worldly sphere, but nonetheless, music in a way for me is always transcendental. And then they're connecting them with these long notes, which relate to different frequencies of the body, you know. And uh, so they go up these different energy centers of the body. They start in the lowest one, they go to the highest. So these notes and these samples, like they take always like the note up or the step up. Like the sample is what takes it one step up, you know.
if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? Probably something of Gonzalez Torres. I like the situational aspect in, in his work, also that, that it understands that at the end, visual art is always comes out of decoration, you know, like, I mean, because you're asking me live with, right? Like that, that refers to a home. If you ask me like, what, what is the most relevant work of art, you know, like in the last 20, 30 years, I wouldn't necessarily say his work or something. But if you ask me live with, yeah, like probably something Gonzalez Torres. And the last question, what's art for? Well, sometimes I like to, you know, like, give definitions of art right and that seems like a question of that and i think like you know one one of my favorite definitions of art is like art um is the refuge of the spiritual in a secular society you know so you know the secular society doesn't allow for spirituality really um because it's like that's what defines it as secular and it's quite evident if you go to a you know encyclopedic museum you, you'll see the first works are still altar paintings which have literally been taken out of a church and now, you know, the beginning of this kind of more historically rational oriented new format, the museum, you know. So like, although this connection is not really allowed in a secular society, this is the way to what secular society could allow itself, like in a secular way. Obviously churches still exist and all of that, but that's this particularly secular way of relating to higher spheres, you know. Tino, thank you so much. No, thank you, and I'll press the button here. Tino Segal is at Blenheim Palace until the 15th of August. You can read more at blenheimpalace.com. And Tino's also making work for another great Baroque building with English landscape gardens, the Melk Abbey in Austria, between the 2nd and the 4th of September this year. Find out more at globeartacademy.at. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack. And the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Michalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hath away and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Tino Segal. Join us next week for a brush with Alberta Whittle. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Artica. Go to articabooks.com to discover books transformed into authentic works of art.